6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of Job, chapters 2 through 5. Well, we're in the book of Job, and uh, we're in the second session, and we're going to springboard off chapter 2 and see if we can't get uh, all the way to chapter 5. Last, uh, in our introductory session, we talked about the basic book, the oldest, one of the, clearly the oldest book in the Bible. It's one that's widely misunderstood, and uh, we'll try to glean from it the real lessons that God has for us here. In chapter 1, we saw, an, it opened up with Job and his prosperity. Here's a guy that was probably, we're dealing with the time of Abraham roughly, and probably in the area of northwestern Arabia, Edom, and that, that part of the world. Job is... We saw him in his prosperity, very wealthy, very powerful man. But we also saw this strange confrontation between God and Satan, where God says, Satan, have you looked at my servant Job? And he says, because he, he's, and God gives him a, 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 an A on his report card. He's, uh, he's blameless. That doesn't mean sin, sinless, but he deals with the sin. In other words, he's right with God. Satan, in effect, says, well, of course he is. He's so prosperous. Take that, take away his possessions, and of course he'll, have a whole different attitude. So God says, okay, you can do that. And so Satan does. And the greatest calamities fall upon Job. He loses his, his kids, he loses his wealth, and and uh, it's a very, very disturbing thing. Now, as we go through the book of Job, let's remember that Job didn't have the benefit of that conversation that we understand from reading chapter 1. All he knows is that the house came down, so to speak. Literally on his kids, killed them all. All ten of them, seven sons and three daughters. We also notice, we learn a lot about Satan in, in chapter 1. Satan's accountable to God. Let's remember that. It's not a dualism. He is subject to and accountable to the guy that created him. And his dark mind is an open book to God. And uh, Satan, we also learn, is behind the evils that curse the earth. And he's neither omnipresent nor omniscient. He's just a super angel. That's not the same. Don't, don't confuse him with a divinity. And in fact, Satan can do nothing without divine uh, authorization. But we also learn that God's eyes are always on his own. And that's uh, that's an exciting thing. And a uh, little grandchild, ask your grandpa, can God see me all the time? A little worried, you know. And grandpa says, he loves you so much he can't take his eyes off you. I like that. And that's true of you and I. In any case, that's the quick background. But Satan was allowed to take away all his possessions, but not touch him personally. And that brings us to chapter 2. Let's jump in Job chapter 2, verse 1. Again, there was a day when the sons of God, that's this term for angels, came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan came also among them to present himself before the Lord. That term, Benaiha Elohim, it's a term used of angels. A lot of people don't really understand that, but it's very, very true, very well authenticated, both in the Old Testament, in the ancient rabbinical literature, and also in the early church. So while there's some controversies about it, 
Uh, I think it's they're they're not within not 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 competently. Okay. But now we're about to have round two, as we'll see. See, God has already vindicated uh, Job, and I should say his evaluation of Job in chapter 1, but we've got round two coming up here. Verse 2, The Lord said unto Satan, From whence comest thou? And Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro in the earth, and from walking up and down in it. So rhetorically, these two verses are very parallel to the two verses we encountered in chapter 1, but we're going to move on a little bit here. The Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job? That there is none like him in the earth? That's quite a statement. A perfect and upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil. And still he holdeth fast his integrity, although thou movest me against him to destroy him without cause. So in other words, uh, uh, he gives Satan the same challenge, but adds the fact that, uh, you know, in round one, he, Satan lost. <laughs> Job acquitted himself very honorably. And he's just beginning, by the way. So the chapter one is a rebuttal against the premise of Satan that all this whole idea that all mankind is interested in is his own self-interest. That may be true for many, but not of Job. By the way, notice Satan's role is always accusing the brethren. So, you know, this, he's really our accuser. He's the accuser of the brethren, and uh, we know that what that agenda. That's it. When we there, there are a lot of. Um, people who have a ministry that starts getting obsessed with accusing the brethren. Newsletters, radio programs, whatever. And it's tragic because once you start down that path, it spirals and gets worse and worse and worse. And uh, we need to recognize whose agenda they're advancing. Who's the accuser of the brethren? Satan. And so, uh, not that there aren't valid criticisms within the body, but they'd be dealt with in private. I'll check their Bible. I think it's still in Matthew 18. It's right in there. Take a look. But anyway, let's move on. Verse 4. And Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, yea, all that a man hath he will give for his life. Skin for skin. That's a strange phrase. I think we get the flavor of it, though. It's a proverbial uh, saying, as if bartering for an animal. Skin for skin. What Satan's saying is, you you, you didn't let me really touch him. You just let me touch his possessions. Possessions? His family? (laughs) And all the thousands of camel, all his his his, his herds, it was enormous. But still, uh, uh, Satan challenges God. He says, uh, "Put forth thy hand now and touch his bone and flesh, and he will curse thee to thy face." That's Satan's prediction. See, Satan's asking for a change of rules. He's lost round one. Now he wants the rules changed. I'm somehow reminded of something my dad told me: "Never waste your time on a good loser." You know. <laughs> so we'll see what goes on here. Anyway. A flesh and bone, you see, that, that, what he's, that phrase, of course, refers to our humanity. It's emotional as well as physical, by the way. But it's interesting that this is the same expression Jesus used after his resurrection. Remember that night in the upper room in Luke 24? Uh, handle me and see. They thought he saw it was a ghost. No, handle me and see. A spirit does not have what? Flesh and bone. Not flesh and blood, flesh and bone. The blood didn't shed. Flesh and bone. Um, now, as we go through this, realize, of course, that uh, as Job has no awareness of this, uh, of, of uh, what was going on behind the scenes with Satan. And by the way, remember that. Remember that. Because you don't have any knowledge either what's going on behind the scenes. Job's going to get clobbered. He's been clobbered. It's going to get worse. And most of the book are dialogues about that we're going to get into. 
But remember that we have the benefit as observers of an insight Job didn't have. He had to just trust God. And he does. Verse 6, And the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, he is in thine hand, but save his life. In other words, you can do everything but kill him. So Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord, smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot unto his crown. The commentaries are full of conjectures as to what it was that he really had. Some say a form of leprosy, some say an elephantiasis, whatever that is. And uh, there's a whole bunch of uh, about seven or eight other conjectures that I can't pronounce properly, so I'll spare you that. Sore boils is the way it's translated, very similar to the plagues in Egypt in Exodus 9. Uh, also in Deuteronomy 28. Hezekiah had some kind of illness similar to this apparently in 2 Kings 20, but nothing like Job's because if you go through the book of Job's and extract all the allusions to his illness, you get quite a list. Because in verse 7, he's going to end up with inflamed ulcerous sores. In verse 8, they're itching. Uh, in um, verse 7 and 12, they're degenerative cha- uh, changes in his facial skin. He has a loss of appetite in chapter 3. He has depression, nightmares, worms and boils. Hardened skin and running sores in chapter 7. Difficulty in breathing, chapter 9. Dark eyelids, failing vision, foul breath, rotting teeth, loss of weight, anorexia, continual pain, restlessness, peeling, blackened skin, fever. And this all lasted for at least several months. And uh, all the lists and the references will be in the notes, but you get the idea. So you thought you had problems? (laughs) By the way, the good news is Satan does not appear after this verse. We're through with him now. We've got the context set. From now on, we're going to focus on some of these issues. Verse 8 and 9, he took him a potsherd to scrape himself with all. He sat down among the ashes. Then said his wife unto him, Dost thou still retain thine integrity? Curse God and die. Husbands do often draw emotional strength from their wives, in fact, more than they probably realize. So this is would seem on the face of it disheartening, but it must be admitted in the translation, we can't really tell what she's proposing, and even less what her motive was. In the Septuagint, there's an expansion which represents her, not unfavorably, as sharing Job's misery so that her motive in wishing him dead was to end his unendurable suffering speedily. In other words, it was almost a, a, a comment of mercy, not 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 the way it comes across in the translation to us. It actually, the word is actually blessed, but it's done with sarcasm. So curse God and die is the way you find it in the English, but it may not be quite as brutal as it first sounds. There's, there's more to it than that. But verse 10, But he said unto her, Thou speakest as one of the foolish women speaketh. What? Shall we receive good at the hand of God, and shall we not receive evil? See, in all this did not Job sin with his lips. Now, that's pretty impressive already. I know I wouldn't have handled it that way, you know. By the way, he didn't call her a foolish woman. He said he spoke as one of the foolish women. So, again, the tension may not be as big as it sounds at first. See, Job's saying, we're not here to have a good time. There are meaningful objectives to be attained in this life, even when it all seems to turn sour. When pressure comes... And life is no longer fun. Life is still worth living, is his, is his point. A philosophy that wants to abandon everything as soon as things become unpleasant is a shallow, distorted view of life. Now, Job did not sin. So the score now is 
two to zero in favor of Job and God against Satan. Okay? See, if Satan had his way, we would all perish. But God said you couldn't take his life. Well, he, did, he brought him right up to the edge. You know? And we always want to remember that God assures us that we'll never experience more than we can handle. And Job proved that. And he's teaching us our limits. You say, well, gee, Satan really had Adam. He wiped out his flocks and his herds. He wiped out his family, all his possessions. Now he's taken away his health. Remember in Wall Street, they say, if the biggest problem is money, you're in good shape. Because, you know, you can always get more money. Health is a scary thing to lose, as you probably, I'm sure you're all sensitive to. But Satan's not through. He doesn't appear in the text, but in effect... There are three guys that show up that are the worst of all the things that happened to Job. These three guys are bad news. They're his friends. They are his friends. They come to mourn him. But as they often quip here, if you have friends like that, you don't need enemies. This is Satan's final stronghold, the spirit of Job, the ultimate reality of his life. Satan's Heavy artillery in the book of Job are not the tornadoes and the brigands that stole his property. It's not the boil. His, his, his heavy artillery were his religious counselors. His religious counselors do more to jeopardize Job than all the rest put together. So let's pay attention to where this goes. Okay. Verse 11. Now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that was come upon him, they came every one from his own place. Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite. For they all had an appointment together to come to mourn for him and to comfort him. I want you to notice the kind of comfort they give him. But by the way, they all came from different countries, and they were his friends. Job was an international figure, very wealthy before he lost it at all. And they all came to, 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 uh, to help him, or moan him, comfort him. Eliphaz the Temanite. I'm going to suggest we're going to call him Eliphaz the Eloquent. I'm going to give each one of these guys a nickname to help you remember the style of their attitude. Eliphaz the Eloquent. Eliphaz is an Edomite name. We see him in Genesis 36. And uh, a Temanite was either from Tima in Arabia, as some people conjecture, or Timon in Edom. That's the one I personally favor. And there's lots of scripture verses that where these things are alluded to. But Eliphaz bases his arguments that he were going to we're going to go through a whole bunch of discussion here, based on his own observation and human experience. That's Eliphaz's orientation. He really says Job is suffering because he has sinned. That's his premise. That's his assumption that undergirds his basic argument. That this is all, the reason Job's in all this trouble, he obviously has some unconfessed sin in his life. Now, now around the office, we often joke about that. Someone will come, you know, have a, have a bad cold and can't keem to shake it for a few days. We say, there must be some unconfessed sin in your life. But we're being facetious, of course, just doing it, you know, just in banter. Well, we get to the second guy, Bildad the Brutal. Bildad the Shuai. You know, they often, we often used to have a little contest, you know, uh, who's the shortest guy in the Bible? Most people say Nehemiah is the shortest guy in the Bible. If they ever say this, no, no, it's Bildad the Shuhite. See? Okay. <laughs> See, it's amazing what you can learn in these Bible studies. Isn't it? Bildad the Shuhite was from Shua. It's a location probably named after Abraham's youngest son in Genesis 25. 
And there is a plausible identification with a place in the middle of Euphrates, uh, it's mentioned in cuneiform text, but those are conjectures. No one's written. Of these locations and stuff, are, there are a lot of scholastic conjectures. Some, it's all su- uh, suggestive evidence, not, nothing certain about that. But anyway, Bildad, the brutal, as I'll call him, he rests his arguments on human tradition. He simply says that Job's a hypocrite. That's what he'll say when we get to him. And the third guy is Zophar the Zealous. <laughs> and um, he has the same, his name is the same as Balak's father. There may be a relationship in Numbers 22 or not. We're not sure. And name possibly is the town in Judea, but we're not sure. But so far, the zealous, his arguments are based on the assumptions of human merit versus orthodox dogma. He, he, said, he simply says, Job, <clears throat> pardon me, Job is a wicked man. All these reasonings are wrong in their conclusions and false in their logic. So God himself, by the way, is going to declare that they were, that they had, quote, darkened counsel by words without knowledge when you get to chapter 38. Ultimately, after these discourses get thrashed around, God himself will go to def- in the defense of, of uh, Job. So there are the three friends. I'm going to leave on the shelf for the moment a fourth guy that will show up by the name of Elihu. And he's a man of mystery. We'll talk about him when we get there, but just realize that there are three friends and Elihu. When God steps in to rebut these guys, he rebuts the three friends. He doesn't comment on Elihu. Elihu is, I think, widely misunderstood. Many commentators just assume, well, he's a fourth guy and he was wrong too. Well, maybe so. I think he's more of an intercessor than a judge and we'll take a look at him. And he'll show up in chapter 32. And uh, again, he's uh, a Buzzite. May have been from Buzz, which is the name of Abraham's nephew. I mentioned along with Dedan and Tima. Those are all Arabian locations, so we think we're pretty secure on the geographic assumptions here. But anyway, these three friends, when they had, verse 12, when they had lifted their eyes afar off, they knew him not. In other words, they didn't recognize Job at first. They knew him not. They lifted up their voice and wept, and they rent everyone his mantle and sprinkled dust upon their heads toward heaven. These are all classic ways to express grief and despair. They wailed, emotional shock. They wept in sorrow. They tore their robes. It's very Jewish to tear your robes when, when you're in, in brokenheartedness. And they threw dust over their heads towards heaven is a way of expressing deep grief and their helplessness. And uh, so they handle the situation like a funeral. Job is almost there. In fact, wishes he was in a funeral before we're through. Verse 13, so they sat down with him upon the ground. How long? Seven days and nights. Wow, seven days and seven nights. And they, none spoke a word unto him, for they saw that his grief was very great. That's actually pretty sensitive. It's amazing when someone has grief, how we want to call. Yeah, I can remember when my dad died. I was getting my mother just settled down, just beginning to deal with it, and someone would call and commiserate over the phone, and she'd get all broken up again after working. I mean, if they just would leave us alone for a few days, not you know, you, you feel you have to do something. It's amazing. That it's, it's, solitude is, 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 in many respects, often the best healer. But anyway, seven days was the statutory term for mourning the dead. By the way, we see that in Genesis 50, 1 Samuel 31, Ezekiel 3, and other places. Which means we got through a full chapter. That's pretty good. We're doing fine. Here's Job chapter 3. And after this opened Job his mouth, 
and cursed his day. His, when he says his day, it probably means his birthday, the day of his birth. Weeks may have gone by, apparently, and he's baffled, he's buffeted, tormented. Job longs for death. In this chapter, he's going to ask three poignant questions. First is, why was I ever born? I don't know how many of you ever felt have been that low, that low. But I think many of us have gone through a period where we really, you know, in our heart of hearts, raise that question. Verse 2, Job spake and said, or actually he was as answered, Let the day perish when I was born, and the night in which it was said, This is a man-child conceived. And by the way, there's a, there are other psalms of grief that are analogous to Job 3 here in Jeremiah 20 and Lamentations 3, but especially Psalm 22, verse 1. There was one that bellowed out like this, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Well, Jesus quotes that in Matthew 27. Anyway, verse 4, Let that day be darkness, let not God regard it from above, let not the light shine upon it. Just to give you a flavor, we're just getting, a, and the translations are not easy, by the way. Almost every major author has, does his own translation because the Hebrew is very difficult. But it is incredibly eloquent. There's darkness is going to be mentioned the next five times using four different words. And the verbal tapestry here is clearer in the Hebrew, of course. In all six lines of verses four and five, they're unified by various verbal signals. Verse five. Let darkness and the shadow of death stain it. Let a cloud dwell upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify or stain or challenge it. As for that night, let darkness seize upon it. Let it not be joined into the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of months or let, or let it not rejoice among the days. Another way to say it. Lo, let that night be solitary. Let no joyful voice come therein. Let them curse it, that curse the day who are ready to raise up their morning, it may say in your translation, actually raise up their Leviathan. The word Leviathan is mentioned in five passages in the Scripture. Here, in chapter 41, where we will take it up and talk about it, Psalm 74, Psalm 104, and Isaiah 27. These are possible reference to dinosaurs. And we'll take that up as a topic when we get to chapter 41. Job is probably simply referring to the custom of sorcerers or enchanters who claim to have power to make a day unfortunate by rousing the dragon asleep in the sea. It's poetic license on a common idiom is what we're dealing with here. Remember, the book of Job is mostly like an opera. It has a front end and a back end that's prose. But most of the, you'll, you'll discover as we get into this, the actual rhetoric that's recorded with these discourses is incredibly eloquent. And uh, it's, it's uh, in, almost in the end of itself in terms of the eloquence with which it's expressed. Continuing at verse 9, Job says, Let the stars of the twilight therefore be dark. Let it look for light but have none. Neither let it see the dawning of the day. And I like the way the Hebrew says it, the eyelids of the morning. <laughs> the eyelids of the... <laughs> that's great. Verse 10, Because it shut up not the doors of my mother's womb nor hid sorrow from mine eyes. This is marvelous poetry. Hebrew poetry, of course. And Job's pressure, of course, is increasing, and he's beginning to crumble under it. And uh, there's nothing harder for us to understand than unexplained trouble. It's different if you know why it happened, if it causes it. When it's just surrounding you for no apparent reason, that's the, that's the hardest to deal with. 
Verse 11, Job continues, Why died I not from the womb? Why did I not give up the ghost when I came out of the belly? See, the second question, why was I born then? Why didn't I die at birth? He's low. He's, he's really down, understandably. Verse, why did the knees prevent me? Why did the breasts should I, that, that I should suck? He's saying, he said, my, wife, my life has been totally meaningless. But then he gives us a very primitive view of death that he'll revise before this book is over. Uh, verse 13, For now should I have lain still and been quiet. I should have slept. Then I had been at rest. With kings and councils of the earth, which built desolate places for themselves, or with princes that had gold, who filled their houses with silver, or as a, a, a hidden untimely birth, I had not been as infants, which never saw the light. There were wicked there, uh, the wicked ceased from troubling, and the weary be at rest. There the prisoners rest together. They hear not the voice of the oppressor. The small and the great are there, and the servant is free from his master. That's his concept of death. He could be at least at rest in solitude. That's what he's yearning for. Many people see death that way, time of rest, so on. Now, there's a play called Our Town. Many of us got involved with it in high school, which uh, deals with that sort of a perspective. Now, Job's understanding of life after death is going to need enlightenment, and he gets it before this book is over. In fact, in chapter 19 is one of the most incredible declarations of the resurrection that you'll find in the Old Testament when we get there. In fact, this may be one of the reasons this suffering comes into his life, because it really sharpens his understanding of what life is really all about. His view of death, Job's view of death, will be very different by the end of the book. Well, now we get to Job's third question, is why can't I die now? So, you know, why was I born? Why didn't I die at birth? Why can't I die now? He's, re- he's, he's really down. That's really what it boils down to. Verse 20, Wherefore is light given to him that is in misery and life unto the bitter in the soul, which long for death, but it cometh not? And dig for it more than for hid treasures. Suicide is never contemplated here. Death must be, must be God's gift. And for Job now, this is the only possible um, evidence of God's goodness. If you just take me out of here. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Job. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-K-HOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word. Music